the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome. It is... Tuesday, is it not? Yes, Tuesday all day long. I had to pause there and think for a moment. It is Tuesday, the 21st of August, just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., and welcome on board another edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts in your ears. We are each Monday through Friday at this time addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, as we welcome you to today's program, coming up a little bit later on, we'll be joined by California State Congressman Tom McClintock. He'll join us live from Washington, D.C., Get a bit of perspective on the California fire fire, uh, fires. And, and I you say, well, you're going to Washington to get perspective on California fires. Makes no sense. I'll tell you what really doesn't make any sense. And that is many of the current federal forestry and EPA policies in place that make it illegal for California to deal with and mitigate the potential threat of fires here in California essentially says that all Forest land has to be protected. You can't maintain it. You can't do any um, uh, pre-burns. And as a result, we have lost tens of hundreds of thousands. And this year, we're approaching nearly one million acres, one million square acres that have been destroyed. So in an effort to try and say we want to protect our forests, we are actually putting our forests at greater risk. And Congressman Tom McClintock will give us deeper into that insight into that coming up a little bit later on in tonight's program. Think back 100 years for a moment, would you? Those of you that are old enough to remember, <laughs> and if you can't, well, follow the bouncing ball, as they say. 100 years ago, in fact, August of 100 years ago, World War I had not yet ended. The telephone was a new device. The movies were still silent. Radio, well, radio was still in its experimental stages, and things like television, cell phones, the Internet were decades away. The income tax, your 1040, was filed on a postcard. And transportation around the Bay Area, like the Golden Gate Bridge, the Oakland Bay Bridge, well, that didn't exist. In fact, neither did the San Mateo Bridge or the entire city of Foster City, 100 years ago, didn't exist. And if you wanted to travel from, say, San Mateo to Hayward, that was a 45-mile drive that took you, on average, considering both automobiles and road conditions of those days, four hours to make it from San Mateo to Hayward, which in those days was actually known as Russell City. Oh, and one other thing, 100 years ago, a church was being planted in the city of now Hayward that will be celebrating its centennial this September. And joining me today in studio to talk about it is the senior pastor of Templo de la Cruz, Pastor John Macis, along with Assistant Senior Pastor, Pastor Paul Roman. Gentlemen, welcome to the both of you. 
Thanks, Craig. Great and to be here. Uh, we should we should probably note, uh, Pastor Macis, that uh, you were not the only pastor over the last 100 years. There's been five <laughs> of you total. Uh, you are the the fifth and most recent senior pastor of a church that has a long and rich legacy. And one of the things you were telling me off the air is that the the current church area where the ministry is taking place, the 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 physical location is only about a block from where the original church plant was made, clear back in 1918, and you consider continue to minister to the same community a century later. Now, that's got to be a record. I, yeah, I think it is. <laughs> and when so many churches have looked for greener pastures, they want more space, they want bigger and taller buildings, more parking, more facilities, the neighborhood has changed, and we hear that a lot. People say, well, it's just not the same neighborhood. People have come and gone. The uh, The economic texture of the community has changed. The demographics have changed. And so we want to move to greener pastures. They always say, you know, the grass is greener on the other side. And yet Templo de la Cruz has remained where it's at, where God planted that vision a hundred years ago, and it sounds like that that's happened with great intent. Tell me why. Yes, well, um, one of the the beautiful things about being a church of a hundred years old is that we have a great tradition, and we actually have people who were uh, raised in that church. I have a, my oldest member is 92 years old. His family uh, lived in the, the neighborhood they uh, went to the church. There was a church bell. They'd ring it, and all the families uh, around the church would come. And from what I'm told, there was about 3,000 people in Hayward slash Russell City back then, and uh, and it was all orchards around the neighborhood. And so it's changed. Of course, Hayward's uh, the sixth largest city in the uh, Bay Area now, and uh, it's our neighborhood's one of the most challenged. Uh, but we we feel like we want we want to stay there because uh, it because it's a challenge community. It's a challenged neighborhood. And so we want to minister to those people. We want the broken. We want the hurting. We want to love on them. And we want to be a stable place for them to come. And so we've had many people uh, come in and out of our church. Um, they've you know, been in jail. Uh, they're in recovery. Uh, they're going through many difficult challenges in their life. And we, we want them to know that whenever they, they're looking for God, their Temple de la Cruz will still be there waiting for them. So they're you, ready to come. You build the uh, you build the hospital in the area where there's the greatest pain, the greatest need, the greatest requirement for healing. Yes. And in this sense, God literally has has brought the mission field to your doors. Yes. And it's interesting you say hospital because when I got to Temple de la Cruz in 2004, that's one of the the labels that was put on our church, a Holy Ghost Hospital, and so where people would come and get healed. So it's interesting that you say that, Craig. And in terms of the, the existing congregation and the area in which you minister, you refer to it as challenged. What yes. exactly do you mean by that? Um, economically challenged. Um, uh, there's, because the neighborhood is uh, it's, it's economically challenged. It's an older neighborhood. So, yeah, in, yeah. Uh, older. Some of the houses built, built there were in the 1910s when the church was built. Um, there's a lot. There's you know, gangs around the area. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people, you know, uh, immigrants in the area. So... They go there and they, they, they live there, and so uh, we've had some you know some drug there's some drug addiction in the neighborhood, and so uh, it's challenging. That's why uh, about six years ago, uh, we the city of Hayward put in for a grant uh, from the Obama, Obama administration, and it was to help the families of the neighborhood. So in the whole country, five communities got the Obama grant for uh, 25 million for over five years to help children from the cradle to to college so is how they named it. And uh, we we received that grant because of the 
condition of our neighborhood. Wow. And, and, you know, again, when you think of the areas where the greatest need exists, what better place to plant a church and to thrive and grow but to be there in an area where, yeah, there's probably a lot of work that needs to be done, a lot of heavy lifting, so to speak. But this is exactly what we as the church have been called to do. Pastor Roman, your thoughts? It's a it's a neighborhood that seems to uh, struggle socially as far as um, the diversity, um, the ages where we see young people getting in trouble a lot. Um, we've had just right across the street SWAT teams that have come out, laid people on the ground with guns on their heads. Wow! Um, it's it's you know it's been said that such as it says as the triangle. Just as you have the Bermuda Triangle, that's what they consider that also, the the police force. And it's it's always said that the house of God should be a light in the midst of darkness. And that it's 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 shining in that way where people have come and found refuge and found a sense of peace by coming to that to the house right there and um it's it's brought about a lot of changes. The greater the challenge though, the greater the opportunity. Yes. So I'm thinking of a story I heard. It didn't happen when I was there, but before uh, the cops were chasing a young man. Mm. And he, during one of our services, I believe it was a Sunday night, and he ran into the church and hid in our balcony. And the cops came in looking for him. Of course, they respected, uh, you know, the worship service going on. But they came in asking. They were looking for him. And he was hiding. They didn't find him. And then uh, they left, and he ended up leaving. Uh, But we've had things like that happen before in our church. And, and, and the irony is some eavesdropping on this conversation today what, would say, well, you've just described a good reason why you should relocate. You should go find a different place to minister to. Because after all, are these the kind of people that we want coming into the house of the Lord? Yeah. yeah um, I mean, you know, Christ said that he came for those that were hurting, not for those that were well. And um, yeah. I think it's, it's important to remember from where we've come from. You know the the debts from where we were saved and rescued, and to understand that there are those that may even be deeper, and just as our hearts cried out for a help, for someone to share love, for even a, a shining that light of hope, I think it's it's important for us to remember that that if we are to take in the likeness of Christ, then it should be not just with words but with action, and being there gives that action that they can so that's someone who we can depend on, because if we can minister to them in a physical sense by providing food or care or things the spiritual the spiritual aspect will come easy to them to whether I can trust them that they can take care of this that I know they're telling me the truth about what they're preaching to me and what they're sharing with me so it really is in, in a sense then um, lifestyle evangelism and, and by that I mean it is showing the power of a changed life and reaching out addressing somebody else's felt needs whatever that might be and in doing so, demonstrating Christ's love. Because it's easy to say God loves you and be on your way as you pass the man who's on the street begging for bread. And yet, have you really shown Christ's love? Did you stop to take a moment, acknowledge their pain, do something to help alleviate that pain? It's always interesting to note that, that throughout the ministry of Christ on earth, whenever large crowds would gather and eventually he would speak, it was always preceded by times of miracles, be it something as amazing as feeding the 5,000, to healing of the blind, restoring the, the hearing of the deaf, or other miracles that Christ 
in his earthly ministry, even as man-God, acknowledged the need to demonstrate love and address the felt needs, the physical suffering of people, before he then addressed their spiritual suffering, their spiritual need. And I think what Pastor Paul is also alluding to is that um, we've we've felt that pain. We've been affected by that pain of of addiction, uh, poverty, things like that. And so we have a compassion uh, and an empathy for them. And so my life has been impacted by by things like addiction and violence. And so I, I my heart goes out to those people. And once once the the love of Christ, you know, which is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, um, comes in. Uh, we, we we just want to reach them. We want to love them, and and it is challenging, uh, Craig, because a lot of times people come out, you know come out of that lifestyle. You you try to minister to them and encourage them and build them up, and you could put a lot a lot of time, a lot of effort in them, and then uh, they'll just disappear on you because what they're trying to overcome is so difficult. Um, but the beautiful thing is, is that's happened to us a lot. Um, but we never we never get discouraged. We never want to quit or leave the neighborhood. Uh, but often they'll come back again. And so, and they know we're there, and we'll, we'll just love them again. We'll, we'll, we won't question, you know, what happened, where'd you go, make them feel guilty or condemned. We just keep loving them as if they never left, and yeah. and the the impact of that is is uh, is wonderful. So, as you share that, Pastor Macias, I, I the the image flashed through my mind of Judas, in the sense that some would say, well, you know, let's let's make sure that you cast your pearls not before swine, but before those who will appreciate what you're doing. And my goodness, if they're not accepting of what you're doing and you've poured time and attention and, and addressed felt needs and loved them in every way you can, and yet they still turn their back on the message of Christ, imagine how Jesus himself felt when he was betrayed by one of his own who right. could easily say, you've walked with me, you've sat with me, you've cried with me. We've been together every waking moment, every sleeping moment over the course of three and a half years, and this you do to me? So Christ knows that sense of of rejection, and yet he doesn't say that we should turn our backs on people, but rather say, nevertheless, and, you know, maybe the important reminder, too, is that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And and we, we like to quote that passage of Scripture when we talk to the unbeliever, Forgetting the fact that that really speaks more to the believer, to put into perspective of where we used to be and what a great salvation we have and why, therefore, we should be eager to to share that, not just in areas where their arms are wide open and receiving and eager and thirsty to to drink of the the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but even to those that resist, because nevertheless, he died for all of us. It's also important to remember that what we're doing is we're planting seeds. And just as we plant a seed in the ground, you can't stare at it and watch it grow. It takes time, and each seed is different. And we just recently had a gentleman that has been in the church for about 20 years. He used to come, and he came in probably about maybe a month ago, and his heart was is that I just care of hearing in my heart. I need to go home. I need to go home. And he called the church. He says, I need to speak to the pastor. I need to go home. And I think, wow, you know, look at what God does. And his timing, he causes that that seed to to flourish and to prosper because it was that gentleman's time. And I think we get so used to expectations of when we do what we do for the Lord, that instant, you know, results. But God has his timing. He knows when each heart will be prepared to receive what fullness that he has for them. So 
I think when we, we can learn to have that mentality that, that what we do is never in vain, that somehow, some way God will be glorified through it, then, you know, we can have that same heart as Christ, that when those things come, we just, we begin just to roll with it, knowing that the end result is that God will be glorified. And, and two beautiful parables tied up in that illustration, Pastor Roman. One, of course, that of the prodigal son, who when finally returning back home, instead of saying, you dirty kid, you, what a terrible thing you've done. How can you treat your father like that? No, go and kill the fatted calf. Call the community together for a great banquet, a feast, a festival. We're going to celebrate the fact that my son, who once was lost, has now been found that he has returned unto me. Uh, That and the parable of the sower. One plants, the other one waters, and God gives the increase. Two great parables tied up in what you just shared in that illustration. And I, and I thought of something, too, when he said that we plant seeds and then we water, like you just mentioned. But I was just thinking we water with tears a lot of times. Um, but, you know, ultimately there's an increase. And we know that the results are up to God. And so that's where our, our faith and our trust lies, that we plant, we water, and God will give the increase. And we trust that, you know, he's a good father. With us today in studio, Pastor John Macis, Senior Pastor at Templo de la Cruz in Hayward. Also, Pastor Paul Roman, Associate Pastor at Templo. Templo is celebrating its 100th anniversary. In fact, there'll be a celebration week-long running September 9th through the 16th at their location, located at 24362 Thomas Avenue in the city of Hayward. You can get more information online at tdlc.org. That's tdlc.org. O-R-G. Let's take this brief time out. We'll get you updated on some traffic, and then we'll come back to more of our conversation. Right now, though, a quick conversation with Michael Bennett, 522 on the clock, and hear an update on your Tuesday ride home. Michael, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back to our conversation. Pastor John Macis, Senior Pastor at Templo de la Cruz. It celebrates its 100th anniversary. John wanted me to be very clear in articulating the fact it is the church celebrating 100 years and not John himself. Uh, also in studio <laughs> yes. with us today is Associate Pastor, Pastor Paul Roman. We've been talking about the 100th anniversary of Templo de la Cruz that has been ministering to the same neighborhood and literally only a block from where the the church was founded 100 years ago, uh, and all of the changes that you guys have seen and the church has seen down through the years, and yet you've you've continued to essentially grow where you've planted. And I guess one of the amazing things, too, when you you think about ministry, not just in Hayward, but anywhere in the Bay Area, the changing face of the Bay Area, you know, it used to be that if you wanted to reach the mission field, you had to go and study another language and learn about their culture and then raise funds and become a missionary and travel overseas and live amongst the people for several years and get used to their customs and, and then eventually gain their trust and begin to minister. And while all that's fine and good and still takes place to this day, now we've got a unique blessing, a unique opportunity in the San Francisco Bay Area in that if you want to reach the world... Yeah, you can learn another language and study a culture and get on an airplane and travel overseas and do all of that. Or you can open your front door. That's right. Talk to me a bit about that sense of reaching the world in Hayward with the ministry of Templo de la Cruz. Yes, um, that's a great question. When we started in 1918, we were actually a Spanish-speaking church, uh, mainly made up of Puerto Ricans, uh, Hawaiian Puerto Ricans and, and Puerto Ricans. And so over the years... Uh, we've evolved or, or you know, changed or grew into a multicultural and now a multi-generational church. And so uh, Hayward is 40% Latino 
And uh, but there's all races there, and even in our neighborhood, we go evangelizing, and we'll we'll run into um, you know Asians, Middle Easterns, Latinos, uh, Caucasian. We run into them all. Literally in our neighborhood, we'll go knocking on doors, inviting people to you know different outreaches we'll do, and, and they're all right there, and it's reflected in our congregation. Is it challenging in in some respects to pastor a congregation that is so racially diverse as that? Uh, you know, I don't feel challenged by it. I, I think because we all have Christ in common, uh, uh, it hasn't. I haven't felt it to be difficult. I, in fact, I really love it uh, that you know that we're multicultural. I really appreciate it. One said, you know, a church that's greatly diverse looks like the United Nations. Another said, no, it just looks more like heaven. <laughs> yes, yeah. and yes. I guess that's really true in that respect, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I do think of Revelation. You know, the every tongue, tribe, and nation. Uh, when I think of the church and, and it, it just thrills me. We have a Fijian man in our church. Uh, we have uh, Asians, right? We have uh, some uh, Polynesians. Uh, we, ha- we have anything you can think of. We have it's represented in our church, and, and we love it. We just think it's wonderful. And uh, Pastor Roman, you've got some background in prison ministry as well. Yes, I uh, for a few years I had worked with the a couple uh, Jeff and Kathy Bogus. That had used Never to heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> for, for listeners, uh, Catherine and I worked together for about seventeen years. I think, long time. Yeah, they 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 continue to do that to this day, and um, it's again, it's it's really uh, a sense of of being able to reach out to them. You know, I think there's sometimes a thought within a church is that we open our doors and we want the people to come in, but you know, Christ compelled them to go to the highways and byways. In other words, they are to reach out. I think it's important for the church to reach out to people in that way. You know, Christ says when you give a cup of water one to these little ones, you're doing it as unto me. And when we do these things and we have that mentality that, you know, I'm honoring Christ by my sacrifice, that these people will understand that, you know, it's not for personal gain. It's not for, for some kind of response or some uh, come join the church, but when they see that their lives matter, they're more receptive to hear what you're saying to them. And there are so many cases where a church never marks its 100th centennial birthday because it doesn't survive that long, because the neighborhood changes. And the mentality sometimes, it says, we know back in the days when we first started, there was this group and they came together. They were all excited. We planted a church. It grew. But then the neighborhood changed and nobody showed up to church anymore. And this mentality that we'll hang out a shingle and they will come. And yet, and you touched on this, the Bible tells us to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. It's not even invite it's compel them yes. to come in. So then you have to say, okay, what is it about my life? What is it about what God is doing in our church family that is compelling to want somebody to get up at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday and rather head to the living room to turn on the TV set and get ready for the big game, instead get dressed and come to church because they've either encountered a Christian or they've heard about the gospel in such a fashion that they found it so compelling that they had to get out of bed and go into that church and worship on a Sunday morning. It's said sometimes, what is it, uh, people will say that they uh, they are a Christian for one or two, or, or never became a Christian for one or two reasons, either because they never met a Christian or because they did. <laughs> mm. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, that should really cause us to, to examine our own life. Yeah. The interesting thing, and Pastor... Masis, you were mentioning this off the air, that there have been times that you have had to add additional chairs into the aisles, 
that literally the building was overrun with so many people showing up to church. So that when many churches that are reaching that milestone in the same neighborhood are dying off and planning to shutter the doors, sell the property, and basically turn the keys of the ministry back over to a denomination, your church not only continues to stay where you were originally planted, but continues to grow and address the needs within the community. For folks that are eavesdropping on our conversation today and they say, well, you know, I'm new to the Bay Area, or, you know, funny, I live in Hayward, and I've been looking for a new church home. Uh, we want to get our kids involved in church. Tell us a bit about the ministry and all that goes on in the life of Templo de la Cruz. Okay, we're, we're, our, we have a family night on Wednesday, pretty standard uh, youth, children, uh, youth children ministry, children's ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry. Um, we have a senior saints ministry, which is our older saints. I believe it's is it 55 and above? Yes. It's 55 and above. And that, that began way before I got to uh, Templo. Uh, but different, so some saints don't, they wait until they're a little older. Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> if I get a vote, I'm going to lobby to change that at least 80 because I don't consider myself in that category just yet. So, yeah, it's kind of, you know, some people you know don't want to join yet. But uh, we, ha- we have all the uh, same ministries. But also we have a heart. We, we're still involved in prison, like, like Paul mentioned. Uh, Jeff and Kathy have been going, I believe, for 25, 30 years now. We're, we go to San Quentin. We go to Santa Rita and to the North Oakland Jail and uh, we get reports on, uh, almost every Sunday. Oh, ten people gave their life to Christ last on Friday night, and uh, we get reports of you know people getting uh, saved, giving their life to Christ in jail. Uh, so we do we do care about justice too in our city. Uh, we have a soup kitchen, we have a food pantry, uh, we do backpack giveaways and outreaches. We do we uh, we bless families during Christmas time. Uh, we reach out to our community during Easter. So uh, we're also very involved uh, with our city. We uh, we work with the Hayward Promise Neighborhood uh, Initiative in Hayward, which is the Obama grant uh, that came to the Jackson Triangle. So uh, we, we, have, we have a lot of opportunities to reach out as well. So, um. A very vibrant, active church community. And if you want to get more information, by the way, about Templo de la Cruz, information on the line at TDLC, tdlc.org. I mentioned, um, Pastor, that you've got a 100th anniversary celebration going on for the entire week, September 9th. That's Sunday, September 9th through the 16th. Tell us a bit. Give us a little bit of a, a little inkling of what's going to be going on that week. Okay, so uh, this has been a great year. We've been celebrating. It's a jubilee year, so we've been celebrating since January. We're going to celebrate all the way through December, and we, uh, we've been inviting uh, uh, pastors and ministers who have ties to our church that maybe have gone on, planted their own churches, got involved in other uh, uh, regions or places. And so every month we're bringing guest uh, preachers. And uh, But what we've been doing is we've been uh, claiming the promises of Jubilee that are found in Leviticus 25. God said in Leviticus 25.10, You shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee to you. And so we've We've been claiming the promises, and we've been seeing them come to pass. And there's people whose families are being restored, finances are being restored. Uh, people have been waiting years for a job. Now, it just seems in the Jubilee year they're coming instantly. Uh, but we want, we're setting aside a week where we're going to celebrate, and we really feel honored uh, for, the, for the people that God has allowed to come. So on Sunday, September 9th, we, we're going to be celebrating what we call a Legacy Sunday. And we're going to have Dr. George O. Wood, who was the former general superintendent of the Worldwide Assemblies of God. And so that's millions of believers all over the world. He oversaw our movement for 10 years, and um, it, it, was, it was almost too easy. 
I, I emailed him, and he committed to come to our church, and he's, you know, he's still very active in ministry around the world. So he's coming on our Sunday, September 9th. We have a three-day revival kind of kind of in the old school fashion. Templo was known for revivals. We at one point had a three-month revival uh, in, in Templo in the 1950s yes. with the great evangelist Roberto Fierro, considered the greatest Hispanic evangelist of the 20th century. And then we're going to have a banquet on September 15th at the Sky West Golf Course in Hayward. And then we're going to close out uh, our closeout service. Uh, we're so honored to have uh, Bishop J.W. Macklin from Glad Tidings Church come and, and finalize our service. So we're just expecting not just a celebration, uh, but something significantly uh, significant to occur spiritually in our church and just a cat, you know just be a catalyst to what God has for us in our next 100 years until Christ returns. That's, that's a good launching <laughs> off point for the next 100 years, absolutely. Yeah. Well, again, if you'd like to get more information about um, Templo de la Cruz, would like to come by and visit, be a part of the 100th anniversary celebrations taking place the week of September the 9th through the 16th. You can get details online at tdlc.org. Think Templo de la Cruz, tdlc.org. I'd like to thank Associate Pastor, Pastor Paul Roman, and Senior Pastor, Pastor John Macis, for being with us today from Templo de la Cruz. And again, congratulations on 100 years. Thank you, Craig. We appreciate it. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a time out, get you updated on some traffic. When we come back, California Congressman Tom McClintock, as this edition of Lifeline continues. Right now, though, let's get that look at traffic. Here's Michael Bennett with the latest. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. California state wildfires, my goodness, just to date, we have seen more than 1,171 square miles burned across our state. And if that isn't troubling enough, try to digest this fact. Fire season has at least two more months to go. Wow. What's happened? What about these trends where in recent years it seems as if the risk to both property and people have increased so significantly across our state? And most importantly, what's government doing to address it? Joining me now, California State Congressman Tom McClintock, representing our state to Washington, D.C., on behalf of the 4th District and all Californians. Congressman McClintock, always great to have you on the show. Always great to be on the show, Craig. Thanks for having me. These numbers are troubling. I mean, last year we saw... 42 people killed, over 8,400 structures destroyed, and over a billion dollars in damage. And this year, as I indicate, statistics from Cal Fire showing that we have over 1,000 square miles burned, and not all of the fires are yet fully contained, and fire season has yet two months to go. What's going on here? Is all of this singularly attributable to so-called global warming? Well... Yeah, the, the, the frustrating thing is this is something we've been warning about for the last 10 years. This is, this is something you could see coming a mile away. And, you know, the problem with the, uh, the global warming argument uh, is that you can see a marked difference between the health of privately managed forests that are not subject to a lot of these environmental laws and the public lands that are hobbled by them. Uh, it, it's often very easy to... to uh, visually identify the property lines between well-managed private forests and the neglected federal forests. I've seen it myself on aerial inspections. So the, the managed forests are green and healthy and thriving. The neglected federal forests are densely overcrowded. Uh, they're often scarred by fire because we're not even allowed to salvage the fire-killed timber while it still has value. So I, I have to ask the question, how clever of the climate to know exactly what's the boundary between private and government land? Um, and it also occurs to me, just accept the argument for a second. 
dozen of warming epoch, and we're certainly in one. It's called the Holocene. It's been going on since the last ice age. But being in a warming epoch, doesn't it make active forest management all, all the more important? Uh, a single five-inch diameter pine tree requires 50 gallons of water every day to stay healthy. 50 gallons of water a day. Uh, the current of, um, of, uh, uh, tree density in our federal forests is now about four times uh, the level that the land and the groundwater can support. So we're, if we're looking at more prolonged dry spells, we have to match the tree density to a level that the land and groundwater can support. We have to space trees so that scarcer snow doesn't get trapped in dense canopies and evaporate before it can reach the ground. And, and forest fires and dead forests make a mockery of all of the laws aimed at reducing carbon emissions. A burning or decaying forest releases carbon back into the air, enormous amounts of it, while a growing forest absorbs enormous amounts of carbon. So milling surplus trees to make way for a healthy growing forest sequesters their carbon indefinitely. It renews the forest's ability to absorb still more. The fundamental problem that we've been warning about for 10 years is, is a very simple formula. All of that excess timber in the forest comes out one way or the other. It is either carried out or it burns out, but it will come out. When we carried out the surplus timber, uh, we had healthy, resilient forests. We had a thriving economy, and those federal timber auctions actually made us money. Twenty-five percent went right back to the uh, local uh, uh, governments of the communities that are affected. The other 75 percent paid for the entire Forest Service uh, with uh, uh, more left over for forest management. So uh, the, the, the fundamental problem is we passed laws about 45 years ago that made active management of our forests all but impossible. We've seen an 80% decline in, uh, in uh, timber harvest off the federal lands. We've seen a concomitant increase in forest fire. It's not that complicated. You know, what's troubling about all of this, as you're suggesting, and that is that the ideological goals established 30, 40 years ago under the federal EPA, and we've seen the Department of Interior encouraging all of this as well, suggesting that we need to protect the forest, which essentially means do nothing. And in the process of doing nothing, because we dare not tear down one single tree, as you point out, Congressman McClintock, the trees are going to come out one way or another. They're either going to be cut down put to good use to build homes and be productive, or they're going to be burned out, risking life, limb, and, of course, the California state uh, economy. And that's what is happening, and it is so frustrating. These laws were passed 45 years ago with the promise that they were going to improve the forest environment. Well, we've been laboring under these laws for 45 years now. They've shut down our ability to actively manage the forest, and I think after 45 years we're entitled to ask, okay, so how's the forest environment doing? The morbid overcrowding of the forests uh, has reached such a point uh, that, as I said earlier, we're carrying four times the timber density the land can support. Now, we're only carrying out about 20% of the annual growth of the forest, so 80% of that annual surplus growth is simply allowed to accumulate. Let me ask you a simple question. If I delivered five newspapers to your doorstep every day and you only threw away one of them, how long would it take for your home to become a fire trap? I'd be buried that's, under newspapers. <laughs> yeah, that's the condition of our of our national forests today. And you can see the contrast when you look at the uh, well-managed private lands uh, that are not subject to all of these environmental regulations. 
Where's the disconnect here? I mean, clearly California has always been susceptible to drought conditions going back well over a century. This is not a new phenomenon. Um, and as we point out, the current events not necessarily attributable to so-called global warming, but rather a real lack of an active forest management plan here in California. And we've seen this increase going on. We even, as we account to the loss of property, the loss of life, nobody ever talks about even the sheer loss of the value of the timber, which has to be in the billions and billions of dollars by now. Why is there this disconnect in Washington, D.C. that continues under the EPA, under the Department of the Interior, to insist that California forests are not allowed to be, quote-unquote, managed? Uh, It's the ideology of the environmental left, which substituted active forest management for a policy of benign neglect. Just leave it alone, and, and nature will take care of the forests. Well, the, the, the problem is Hobbes was right. In a state of nature, life is nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, what happens is that uh, you, you get dense overcrowding. Uh, that stresses the trees. They lose their resilience to drought and disease and pestilence. Ultimately, they are consumed by catastrophic wildfire. Uh, uh, and then brush has first claim on that for, uh, fire-destroyed land. Uh, it takes a century for those forests to grow back. Uh, if you leave them alone. Uh, We decided uh, at the turn of the last century when we formed the uh, the U.S. Forest Service, we were not going to consign our forests to benign neglect. We were going to actively manage them so that every generation would have the full enjoyment of healthy, resilient forests. Um, uh, That's when, instead of allowing uh, the excess timber to burn out, we began to carry it out. Uh, it uh, and as I said, it provided a substantial revenue stream to the federal government, uh, paid for the entire U.S. Forest Service, uh, provided healthy, resilient forests, uh, a great deal of commerce for the mountain communities, uh, and direct revenues to those uh, mountain communities. Since we stopped that, the revenues have dried up. The uh, economy of the mountain communities has been uh, decimated, uh, and our forests are dying. Uh, it's 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 about as clear a contrast between policies that that work and policies that don't work that you can see, and it comes down to this this touchy feely back to nature ideology of the environmental left that uh, if you just leave things alone, nature will take care of itself. If you've just joined our conversation, a visit today with California Congressman Tom McClintock. He represents our state to Washington, D.C. on the 4th District, and of course all Californians. We're talking about the recent spate of severe fires here in California. This, the most dangerous fire season in recorded history, and the troubling aspect of it all? It's not over yet. At least two more months yet remain. And, of course, the concern continues to be on the increase, not only in terms of the loss of life and property in our forest, but yet still the big concern about what to do about this. We'll take a time. I'll come back to more of our conversation with Congressman Tom McClintock as this edition of Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.